Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we come together, we take a look at the upcoming readings for the particular Sunday in the church year. And today we will be looking at the readings for Reformation Day. Technically, the celebration of Reformation is the 31st of October, and that is a fixed date. And the church generally celebrates Reformation Day on the Sunday nearest to the 31st, but not after the 31st. That's been a tradition as as far as I know. And so uh, this coming Sunday, we'll be looking at the readings for Reformation Day. And one of the great things about Good Shepherd having Wednesday night services year-round at 630, we'll also be celebrating Reformation on Wednesday this week. So, uh, Pastor, a couple of comments about celebrating the Reformation as opposed to the 21st Sunday after Trinity or whatever would fall on this uh, upcoming Sunday. Well, it actually has a lot of history within the uh, Protestant Church to celebrate the Reformation. There's even uh, symphonies that have been written specifically to celebrate the Reformation played at this time of the year, Uh, and it's been kind of a tradition uh, for a while. But all the same, you know, we aren't ever worshiping the Lutheran Church uh, above Christ. Uh, Rather, everything we do on this day focuses us back to Christ and his word, which is the entire point of the Reformation. We're not going to worship Martin Luther. We're not going to worship Philip Melanchthon or Martin Chemnitz or, uh, you know, certainly not John Calvin, of course. Uh, We'll leave that to the vicar. But uh, (laughs) we we do celebrate God's Word and uh, emphasize how important it is and how without that Word, there's really not any hope. And so that ought to be our focus on celebrating Reformation, um, not any other thing. And and I think that's a danger that uh, some churches or some pastors can fall into, that Reformation Day becomes a day for a history lesson in the church. And history is important, and the history, uh, the theological history, the uh, political history, uh, all of the educational history, all of these things that surround the Reformation are really, really important. But that's not the main reason why we celebrate Reformation Day every year in the Lutheran Church. It's because of the Word of God. And speaking of that Word of God, the gospel reading, there's, there's an alternate reading for Reformation Day for the gospel. And the traditional gospel, John 8, 31 to 36, is the reading that we're going to be looking at this year. Vicar, take it away. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's S-O-N. Jesus is speaking about himself. Pastor, I've always struggled with the first verse of John 8, verse 31. And so I'm hoping that you can uh, help clarify some of my confusion. I don't know if it's because of the English translation uh, that I've struggled with this or had questions about it, or uh, if there's something else that I'm bringing to the text. The uh, John 8, verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Is this... Uh, is he speaking to to people who had believed in him and fell away, like uh, the the folks we're talking about in John chapter six? Uh, is he talking about the people who believed in him but had weak faith? Um, who is Jesus addressing specifically, according to verse thirty one? Yeah, uh, if you go to the Greek, it's maybe a little bit clearer. Um, it is a participle, of course, the ones who are doing an action of the verb, and it is in the perfect active tense. In other words, uh, it's a past action with present abiding results. And so they are the ones who had believed in him in the past and are still believing at this time. And so that's the way that I would read it in the Greek. Um, I'm by no means a Greek scholar, but that seems to be what the uh, the tense and the the verb form would call for. So these are ones who in the past had believed and are still believing at this point. That is, that is very instructive because Lutherans believe that you can fall, I mean, because the Bible teaches it, that a, a Christian can fall from grace, can fall from faith. And so this is not people who had believed in him and no longer believe in him. According to the uh, uh, grammar, the Greek construction there, these are people that have believed in him for at least a little while and continue to believe in him. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, and I think even Jesus' words themselves kind of help drive this idea home because he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and the truth will set you free. In other words, that word abide, uh, you know, kind of has this idea to remain in the same location, to be with, and and that's even the word, uh, again, this is the Greek verb, meno, uh, which has that idea of remaining in. And so he's saying you have been in the word, and as a result, you have believed. And now if you continue to be in the word and remain in the word, you will continue to believe. And that's the whole idea here that Jesus is kind of teaching here. Uh, I think that makes the idea that they're Christians very clear. Yes, and uh, that's that's very helpful and very instructive because uh, there are many texts that address the topic of falling from faith and uh, remaining steadfast in the faith. Be careful lest ye fall. This is not talking about that. This is encouragement for Christians. This is encouragement for people to continue, to finish the race, to stay firm in the faith, to not abandon the faith. And so to have that clear right off the bat, I think is very, very important for us. If you abide in my word. Vicar, when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, what's he talking about? Well, he's not just talking about what he's been teaching and preaching, although it is certainly that. He's talking about the entirety of the revelation he has given. Jesus is the God who, after all, gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And Jesus here is the God in flesh 
who is revealing the truth of his word, revealing what it really means to have faith. Uh, Pastor, can we say that when we, we see the word word here in verse 31, the end of verse 31, if you abide in my word, can can we make the uh, transfer that and substitute the word Bible? Or would that be uh, would that be illegitimate or incomplete? I, I think we can um, substitute that there, so long as we are uh, understanding probably what's being uh, referenced there. Uh, it's not just the Bible that would have existed at that time in the sense of the Old Testament, but it's also the preaching and teaching that Jesus was doing, uh, kind of in pastoral sense at that time. Biblical scholars like to play that game. <coughs> And say, well, since the New Testament was written, wasn't written yet at this point in time, these kind of passages can only refer to the Old Testament. And so, passages in the New Testament that talk about the infallibility, the uh, inerrancy, the inspiration, the truthfulness of the Scriptures, that only applies to the Old Testament, and we can't apply that to the New Testament. I've I've often thought that those kind of academic arguments were were bogus and silly, and uh, it seems to me. I'm hearing you say the same thing. Well, I think an argument like that is silly because if you're saying that the New Testament isn't saying the same thing as the Old Testament, you're obviously not reading the Old Testament the right way. Uh, The golden thread that holds the entire Scripture together is Jesus Christ. And from all the way back in Genesis 3, uh, throughout the entire Old Testament, everything is looking forward to Jesus, and uh, sacrifices are teaching us about Jesus. The uh, Lord promises, and every time there's a covenant that's made, that he's going to send an offspring, Jesus who's going to defeat sin, death, and the devil. So everything in Scripture is about Jesus, and I think we have to take that idea and bring it to what Jesus says here when he says, if you abide in my word, uh, he's talking about if you're hearing the word that teaches you about me, then you'll have this freedom and you'll know the truth and all the things that come with that. Jesus uses the word truly, and uh, some translations, especially like the King James or whatever, would, uh, would use the word verily. Um, when, when Jesus is emphasizing, um, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This emphasis on truly and truth is throughout the uh, throughout the text, and it poses kind of a um, uh, almost a battle or a uh, contradiction here between uh, truth and error, truth and falsehood, truth and lies. Um, what kind of truth, Vicar, is Jesus talking about when he says, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth." and the truth will set you free. What is this truth? Well, another, another place in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is not only what he has given his people in the Old and New Testaments. It's summed up. It's all about him, what he is doing, his life, his death, his resurrection. So Jesus equates himself to the truth, and then he says, this truth can be known in my word, and knowing this truth is the only way you can be a true disciple. Am I unpacking that uh, in the right order, Pastor, uh, or or is there something missing? Well, uh, 
you know, the way that we are in the truth is hear the word and believe the word, and, and Christ delivers that word to us through the scriptures, through preaching, through all these things, and we hear the word, um, that's the thing that informs our faith and brings us to the truth, and we have to acknowledge that fact when Christ is the word incarnate, word made flesh that dwells among us, and when we're talking about the word coming to us, I, I don't know if we really believe that when we hear a word, God is actually present in the word, and that's what Christ wants us to understand here in this text. So I, I'm not probably not answering your question here, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, when we when we come back from our break, I want to unpack that word disciple because there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk in the church today about discipleship or discipling and uh, oh yeah you your your church does this well but boy you could do a better job at discipling well i want to know what jesus is talking about by linking himself with the truth and being a true disciple I think that's a great place for us to start when we come back from our break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Reformation Day. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP. 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele, we're looking at the readings for Reformation Day. We'll celebrate that on Sunday and Wednesday this upcoming week. We're looking at the Gospel reading, John 8, 31 to 36, and we kind of left everybody hanging with a question. Uh, if you abide in my word, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is so much wonderful stuff to unpack there just in that brief statement from Jesus. But I want to I fix the question on the word disciple. You all, uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We, uh, we have this disciple word used a lot in scripture. It generally refers to the 12. Sometimes it refers to a larger group following Jesus. Sometimes it refers to all Christians, all believers. In the church today, we hear a lot of talk uh, taking that uh, noun, disciple, and turning it into a verb. The church needs to be about discipling. Uh, Pastor, can you help us unpack this term, this theology, this doctrine, what's right, what's wrong, what should we avoid, what should we cling to? Disciple, go. 
Well, I, I think the key is exactly what Jesus says here. The thing that makes us a disciple is God's word, and that's where we need to hang our hat in that regard. Because the people who talk about, well, we need to do more discipleship, or I'm the discipleship pastor and all these things, oftentimes they see making disciples as more than just word and sacraments. And that's actually anti-biblical, and it's actually anti-confessions, anti-small catechism, anti um uh, Nicene Creed. Anti-Lutheran, um, anti-Christian. Right. Um, I mean, we're, we're very clear on this, right? The Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel. That's God's word. Enlightens us with his gifts. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, sanctifies through these things and keeps us in the one true faith. That's the reality. That's what makes disciples. And when Jesus says, uh, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's driving us back to baptism, teaching them all the things that I have commanded you. He's driving us back to the Word. And in fact, I'd say the one thing that Jesus did command uh, is take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. So again, back to the Word and the sacraments. If we try to make disciples apart from Word and sacrament, um, we're, we're going about it the wrong way. And I'm not saying that, you know... <laughs> not having comfortable pews isn't important, or, um, you know, the pastor not dressing like a slob or smelling bad uh, isn't uh, important. It is, but that's because it can come between the hearer and the word more than anything else. And that's why um, we need to uphold the word. We need to focus on the word because God says that's the thing that makes disciples. And that's what Jesus says in this text. If you abide in my word, you are my disciple. That's the bottom line. It, uh, it, sounds, it sounds like many of the things that you you described that are often uh, promoted in the name of discipleship really fall into a completely different category, and that would be assimilation. Now, assimilation is not a word that is in the scripture. It, it is a word that describes um, a sociological or a psychological kind of an activity or action. Uh, you want to share a little bit of your thoughts with regard to assimilation and discipleship? Uh, how are they different? How are they the same? Uh, go. Well, uh, again, the Holy Spirit's the one who works making disciples through the Word and the sacrament, and, and I know I just spent a while hammering that point home. Assimilation is a completely different thing. It's making a person a part of a larger group um, and you know bringing them into a group. And in some sense, the church does that, but it's not actually creating or sustaining faith. It's uh, a completely separate thing. It can go hand in hand together. It's good if the people who hear the word and believe it come and join our church, want to help serve on a committee or a board or something like that and become a part of the larger group, but it's not necessary for salvation. Uh, we can't make these things the same. We can't uh, expect that teaching them about our procedures or our small groups or our um, whatever other thing discipleship pastors do uh, is the thing that's going to make them believe. It's only God's Word that does that, and I'm not sure I'm being clear on that or not, but that that's the truth. We need to uphold God's Word. The other things are secondary at best. The Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and keeps, and if we attach any uh, meaning or work to things apart from the person and work of the Holy Spirit with regard to the things that you just talked about that are that are 
can be wonderful things in the church, but they are not directly connected to word and sacrament ministry. And I think it goes both ways, too. I think it's a sad thing. Lots of times people leave churches because of things that aren't connected to word or sacrament. Maybe they're angry that the church thermostat is set uh, too warm during the winter and too cold during the summer or vice versa. Or, uh, you know, maybe they're frustrated because the pastor couldn't make it to their son's basketball game they invited him to or some silly thing like or that. Or the that's organist not related. plays too fast or too slow. Right. Um, These things are secondary at best. We use these things to support God's word and not even to support it, facilitate it so people can hear God's word. But we don't want any of these things to come between people and God's word. And so we have to make sure that everybody understands they're secondary so that when there's a conflict about the thermostat, it doesn't take people away from God's word and the church. Amen, amen, amen. Vicar, Jesus says, uh, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. What kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? The freedom that he is talking about is the freedom that comes in the forgiveness of sins. Sin burdens us down. Sin separates us from God and causes divisions between one another. When you're forgiven, when you're free from that, you have a relationship with God as your father, and you can dwell together as brothers and sisters in Christ in the forgiveness that he has won. This uh, freedom talk really torques off the people that Jesus is talking to, because when Jesus says, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free, uh, they responded angrily. They answered him, we are a offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Okay, pastor, two parts to this question. First part, how were they lying uh, with regard to We've never been slaves to anyone, and uh, you say we're going to be set free. And two, or B, what was was their thought of the kind of freedom Jesus was talking about? Well, um, you know, it's a complicated thing. In the Roman Empire, there is slavery. It's very common. In fact, a large number of the people living at that time were actually slaves. You're probably descended from some of them. Um, And... It's not slavery the exact same way that we picture it, like the 1800s, but it is slavery all the same in a similar way, uh, where people were completely owned and mistreated by those who owned them. Um, The first thing, you know, on the surface level, they're saying, we're not slaves like the slaves that we own or like the, you know, people that we own. Uh, We haven't ever been slaves. We're free in the sense that we're Jews uh, who are living in the Roman Empire. But in another sense, they're not free because they are in the Roman Empire. They've been conquered by the Roman Empire. They have to pay taxes to the Roman Empire that they don't like, and they're unhappy about these things. Furthermore, the way that they say it, we're offspring of Abraham, indicates that they have been slaves, at least uh, genetically speaking, they're descended from slaves, both in Egypt, uh, in in one sense, um, also at the time of the Babylonian king, um, to be a community possessed by ancient Babylon is nothing short of being a slave. In fact, you know, to become a 
Babylonian vassal, you have to take a big pile of your dirt to Babylon, throw it on the floor before the emperor, and kneel before him, indicating that all the the land that you left behind at home is actually his possession, and you are his possession as well. And so they've been slaves all these times in all these ways, um, and we haven't even gotten to what Jesus is really talking about, which is sin, uh, as we move forward. And that's that's where they completely misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level and about eternal eternity and eternal life and they're caught up with uh, political stuff jesus makes it clear truly truly i say to you everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin the slave does not remain in the house forever the son remains forever so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed pastor how are these words from jesus Uh, verses 34 through 36 of John chapter 8. How are are these words the essence of the gospel? Well, because what Christ is saying is that um, you're a slave right now, and yet... uh, Whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not. But you're going to be emancipated. Uh, And this was something that happened occasionally uh, in the ancient world, oftentimes when the owner of the slave died, Uh, the slaves would be set free at his will or according to his word in that way. And that's what Jesus is saying. The son is going to set you free by dying for you, and then you'll be free. And once you're free, then there's more to it too that he's saying. And also, because you're going to be free, you'll remain in the house forever. In other words, you're going to have eternal life. You're going to receive an inheritance in your freedom uh, as a son would as well. And so it's even building upon the idea of freedom, it's more than that. You also now are an heir, uh, a a brother to Christ, if you will, uh, a fellow heir, as Paul says, and that's the good news also. So all that God has, he's going to give to you through the Son, setting you free from sin and now adopting you as his own child. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son, how is he making a statement, Vicar, that he is not a mere mortal, he is not only a great teacher, but that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and uh, literally the Son of God. Well, Jesus says, all of Scripture testifies about me, and throughout the Old Testament and the Psalms and the prophets, there were messianic titles for the Messiah who is coming, the Son of of God the Son of Man, and these were identified with God himself. And so when Jesus says, you know, I am the Son, or if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, he is saying, I am God come in the flesh. I am the Messiah who will set you free from your sins by my death and resurrection on the cross. Uh, uh, Just a week or two or three ago, we had the question that Jesus asked um, with regard to, you know, who is the Christ? He's the son of David. Well, how can he be David's son and David's Lord? Jesus is teaching that he, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, is both true God and true man all at the same time, and he's continuing to do so here, and he is going to bring about freedom. We don't have all the details of how he's going to bring about that freedom in this particular text, but we know that Jesus becomes a slave to sin by suffering, dying, rising from the dead for us 
and for salvation. That's what the Reformation was all about, and that's what the church is all about still to this day. We need to take another break. When we come back, we're going to look at the first reading for Reformation Day, Revelation 14, 6 to 7. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We're looking at the readings for Reformation Day. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. We'd love to have you join us for worship. We're going to be celebrating Reformation on Sunday and also on Wednesday this week, we gather each Sunday at 8 and 10.30 with family Bible study for all ages in between. Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., we use Lutheran Service Book. We are a liturgical congregation, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. If you can't be with us in person, every service we have is broadcast live on 95.7 KNNALP, The Cross, here in Lincoln. You can check us out on the website, thecross957.org, or the church website, goodshepherdlincoln.org. And uh, we also have a very small but uh, burgeoning ministry on YouTube since the pandemic. And you can uh, use the uh, YouTube search engine, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church Media. And you'll find not only our worship services, but Sunday morning Bible study and daily devotions five days a week. So uh, we are parking the car now at the first reading. Uh, it's not an Old Testament reading because this reading comes from the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 6 to 7, Pastor. Uh, before I have Vicar read these words, uh, this text to the casual listener seems absolutely bizarre. Why in the world are we, I mean, of all the wonderful, we're saved by grace through faith on account of Jesus, the, the cross and resurrection, the power of the word. How in the world did we get this uh, goofy little text from Revelation 14 to be a primary text for the Reformation celebration that is throughout the world on uh, this particular uh, week of the church year. What is uh, some of the history behind this text before we actually hear the words? Yeah, well, um, the Reformation is, of course, a return to God's Word and letting God's Word speak uh, rather than to have our own misunderstandings and philosophy applied to it, to let God's Word uh, have it say with us. And the idea traditionally has been is that this angel comes who preaches the gospel and brings us back to God's Word, and that uh, the idea 
uh, th- this angel that's doing this might have been fulfilled in the person of Martin Luther. And so in, in that sense, that's why this particular gospel has been uh, picked and taken. I think we can even take it even further and more clearly to say, yeah, God is always sending messengers and angels to bring us back to God's word so that we can hear it and, and the Holy Spirit can create and sustain faith within us. And so even bigger picture than Martin Luther, this text really does drive us back to the main point that there is an eternal gospel that's preached to every tribe and language and people uh, that drives us to worship God, the one who created it and redeemed us and sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, Vicar, Revelation 14, 6-7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay, there you have it. Uh, Pastor, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Revelation 14? A little bit of the wider context um, with regard to another angel. You know, what, what, what's going on with these angels? Who are these angels? What, what are they? Uh, you, we know that Revelation has a lot of uh, figurative language, word pictures. What's going on here? Yeah, and we got to make sure people know, too, Revelation uh, might sound a little terrifying and scary, and yet it's supposed to be written for our comfort, because throughout the entire thing, we see a picture of Christ victorious, and he and his people uh entering into God's kingdom of peace and comfort and joy uh, apart from the sorrows and struggles of the world. And lots of times people focus on the sorrows and struggles displayed in Revelation rather than that good news. In chapter 14, we have Jesus, uh, who is the Lamb, uh, who has been slain and yet still lives. Uh, And with him are the 144,000 who have the name of God written on their foreheads, uh, both Jesus' name and God the Father. And this is a picture then of Christ and his church. And we see ourselves in that 144,000. It's not a literal number, but rather it is a figurative number for the entire church and the mark on their foreheads reminding us of baptism. And so we see these people that are now essentially in the church service that heaven is going to be singing the liturgy of the church service of heaven. Uh, And so they're there in heaven, and that leads right into this angel that we're going to see. Okay, so the uh, uh, John gets this vision, this revelation, this angel is flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. Three things there. Gospel, it's eternal, it's proclamation. Um. I'd like your comment on all three of those things in whatever particular order you want to do it. Well, eternal, of course, drives us back to the idea that uh, the message has been the same for all time and will be the same for all time. And that message uh, is the gospel that Jesus has died for sins and risen from the dead to declare that we also shall live forever with him in his kingdom. And so that's the promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the promise given to Abraham. It's the promise given to Jacob, to Judah, to David, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the promise that's given to you. Uh, The proclamation idea is great as well, because how does that message come? It comes through 
preaching the word, through people speaking about Jesus. And this happens in the preaching office specifically uh, when we're talking about what happens in church. The pastor preaches the sermon, the pastor uh, leads the liturgy, and all these things bring you that eternal gospel that brings Jesus Christ. And so those three things go together in that way. Okay, so the mark of the faithful angel is proclaiming a good news, a gospel that is eternal and that only fits one particular gospel, and that is the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Now, the content of what he says, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Pastor, um, I get creation here because God is the one who made everything, but I would think that if this angel is going to proclaim the eternal gospel, um, he wouldn't talk about judgment day. He would talk about the cross and forgiveness of sins. Uh, How are the words coming out of the angel's mouth uh, faithful and true for one who would proclaim an eternal gospel? Yeah, I feel like uh, we talked about this for about... uh a year on uh, our Table Talks program that we are now living in the end times and that when this angel says, fear God, what he's really saying is believe, and and this is uh, first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Uh, Fear is, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Uh, Fear is this faith thing. So believe in God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come, and that hour of judgment comes... um, Yes, it comes at the last day, but more importantly, it comes as Jesus dies on the cross uh, and forgives us our sins when he himself says, the word of God made flesh says, it is finished. That's the judgment of God um, being poured out upon him. And now in these last times, we're waiting for him to return to bring that judgment to its end in, in a certain sense, and that he'll bring this world to its end, and we need not fear judgment anymore. And so this is the gospel uh, in in that sense, because it's driving us to Jesus, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Uh, this is pointing us again to Christ. When the angel, very well said, thank you. When uh, when the angel says, "Fear God," who vicar is the angel talking about? What is this God? Uh, is this is this like this power that is out there? Is this like the life force of the earth? Is is this some Platonic idea or ideal? Uh, is there a specific God that the angel is saying that we should worship and fear? Yes, there is a specific God. It's the God of the Bible. Reaching back into the Old Testament, you know, fear of God is one of the constant refrains you hear. And then in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, I am the Son of God. And then also, you know, in the New Testament, St. Paul tells us that Christ is the very image of God in heaven. So when you see Jesus, you see God. And we only know this through faith because of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus commands the disciples to go out and baptize in his name along with the Son and the Father. God is the Trinity. Fear the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believe in him who saves you. I'm astounded, Pastor, how many times when God is talking about 
who he is, why he is, faith, the fear of God, that the topic of creation is intricately linked to that particular message. Why is the message of creation, uh, fear him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, the springs of the water, why is that connected to a proper fear of God or a proper faith? Well, all invented gods can only be a part of the creation of the real God. And, and so you see that in the ancient world, right? You have river gods, you have uh, tree gods, you have dryads and naiads and nymphs and things like that. You see that in modern uh, pagan worship as well, where you know we need to make sure there's no microplastics in the ocean because uh, this is Mother Earth and we got to you know, love her and hug her and all that sort of thing. Um, but that's not the real God. The real God created all those things that we like to worship. Uh, furthermore, the very name of God, uh, as is given to Moses, I am that I am, uh, is is kind of a fancy way of saying I am the things that exist. In other words, everything has its being, it lives and moves within me and what I provide. The entire universe really is contained within God. Not that we are God. We're not. We're his creation, but he is the master and lord of all these things and uh, controls them and watches over them and keeps and guards them the way that they are. Uh, We even have this idea... In creation, he creates things by the power of his voice, let there be, uh, and I think, uh, I want to say in the book of Hebrews, off the top of my head, it says, uh, the world is still sustained by that voice of God. In other words, he's still calling things into existence by the power of his word, and so the very fact that these things exist tells us that there is a God who's bringing them into existence. When God spoke the words... uh let there be, be fruitful and multiply, that are recorded all the way back in the book of Genesis. The power of that word is such that uh, things are fruitful and multiply even to this day. Uh, we're accountable to that God because he made us. And if we want to think that we're an accident of nature, then we're not accountable to anyone. And I think that ties in very, very beautifully with that eternal gospel. We need to take a break. Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Reformation Day. When we come back, we're going to look at Romans 3, 19 to 28. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. He holds the field victorious, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that uh, great Reformation hymn authored by Luther himself. A mighty fortress is our God. We have a uh, sister program here at Good Shepherd, uh, KNNA Theological Programming. Maybe you've heard it on KNNA. If not, check it out at home in your hymnal. We've been, for the last several episodes, looking at Reformation hymns, and uh, it's a great way to dig a little bit deeper into the doctrine and the history behind some of the great hymns of Lutheranism. 
our final segment here today, the epistle reading for Reformation Day, Romans 3, 19 to 28. It's almost a crime that we've got one segment to look at this. We could have spent our entire program on these uh, rich words from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Vicar, take it away. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You know, Pastor, you can't get much more of a Lutheran, quote-unquote, Bible passage than Romans 3, 19 to 28. The human condition is such that because of our sin, we are a people who love to whine, love to make excuses, and we love to justify our own actions, no matter how bad, how egregious they are. We, we have become masters at it. We, we have an unofficial PhD in self-justification. Paul comes right out of the chute here in our text, um, so that every mouth may be stopped. The law speaks so that every mouth may be stopped. Can you unpack that phrase for us? Yeah, I think you already have kind of done that to a certain extent. We do self-justify, and and the truth is we don't self-justify the big things. You know, um, I guess maybe we would, but, um, you know, if I was to murder the vicar and I got caught, it's hard to self-justify that, right? Well, I don't don't know. I (laughs) don't know. Maybe with the vicar I, is a bad example. Yeah, <clears throat> that that uh, that that might not be all that hard to justify. The but but we do it with the little things probably more often and less aware. So you know um, the little things like when we say something bad about our neighbor or we uh, swear or curse or when we um, you know don't stand up to help and support someone in every physical need but instead uh, you know send them to a nursing home to die by themselves whatever it is a little white lie a little bit right. of gossip a little cheating or fudging on your income tax uh, taking home supplies from the office for your home uh, the the little bitty things that we can or uh, we, sexually, uh, you know, uh, I can look, but I don't touch, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. We, we do it all the time. 
And with those things, we do them so often and we do it saying, well, God's got bigger fish to fry or he won't care about this little thing or I'm only doing it because, you know, my parents put me in this weird situation or because, uh, you know, somebody that I don't like is president or my congressman or whatever. We come up with all sorts of little excuses and all these excuses are self-justifying and when we actually stand before God, we are unable to do this because God's word is perfect and clear. You shall be perfect as the Lord your God is perfect, and we're not. And uh, there's no amount of justification that we can speak that will undo that. There's nothing uh, that we can give as an excuse that will not make us guilty, so our mouth must be silent when we stand before God. It is, uh, it's a, an amazing word picture to me. You know, you've, got, you've got somebody just running off at the mouth, making excuse after excuse after excuse, and God's word says, stop it. Stop it. Every mouth is going to be stopped. And if you don't, it's like he's going to take that giant rag and stuff it in there because he don't want to hear it anymore. The law is good. The law is uh, wise. The law is holy. But the law has no power to save. In fact, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then in verse 21, but... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Uh, Yeah, the law and the prophets testify about it. But the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Vicar, when God is saying that the righteousness of God has been manifested, what's he talking about? He's talking manifested means appearing. It's, It's being shown forth. The righteousness of God is shown forth. It appears most especially in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became man, it was born. The righteousness of God came forth, and we most especially see the righteousness of God manifested when that Jesus died on the cross in order to forgive sins and his victory over sin was vindicated when God the Father raised him from the dead. Uh, the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks a lot this way about things appearing, things being manifested. Uh, and these, these are always references to the incarnation of Jesus and that continuing proclamation of the gospel that we had in our first reading, that eternal gospel that is proclaimed and that goes forth. Pastor... The righteousness of God is repeated. That phrase, the righteousness of God, is repeated several times in this text. Define it for us. Well, the righteousness of God is an interesting construction because, um, well, maybe that's too much for us here today. The righteousness of God in that that sense is, is really neat because it contains all sorts of things that Christ does for us uh, in in the sense that he has been perfect in our place. He has died in our place. He has risen from the dead in our place. He fulfilled all God's law in our place. And then it's interesting then too, this is the thing that makes it interesting because the righteousness of God then also is placed upon us in the waters of holy baptism. In other words, these things that he 
he's done count on our behalf. They're placed upon us. They're imputed is the fancy pastor word that we use. The, the righteousness of God is imputed upon us. And so this is the question when it says righteousness of God, does it refer to the things that Jesus does or does it refer to the things that God sees in us because of Jesus? And the answer is both of those things, uh, which makes that construction interesting. You know, the, the righteousness of God was a, and, and here we've had a whole program. We haven't talked anything about the history of the Reformation or Luther or whatever. Uh, that phrase, the righteousness of God, was a conscience-tormenting phrase because he misunderstood it. Pastor, can you give us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, when Luther read the words righteousness of God, he was terrified because he thought that that was his responsibility, maybe the simplest way to say it, that God had these expectations of how righteous you needed to be if you wanted to be saved. And he looked at his own life over and over again, and he said, well, I'm not doing it. I fall short all the time. I sin, and I sin, and I sin. And that's why it's so important, as I kind of tried to do before, to place the beginning of that upon Christ and what he does, and then to see how he imputes that upon us in the waters of holy baptism so that we have the righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failures, but instead he sees the success and work of Jesus Christ. The explanation about what true justification is. You know, we want to self-justify, but that explanation of true justification in uh, verse 25, uh, right around before, after all, okay, uh, we're justified by grace. It's a gift. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Pastor, what is the connection between true justification and blood what's the explanation or what's connection connection yeah um without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sins and this is really uh, a great promise to us because we see in christ his blood poured out uh, he was beaten and bloodied and then nailed to the cross and when he's even stabbed at death water and blood come out that's the very thing that earns our forgiveness that's the propitiatory sacrifice for our mercy and peace and grace that God gives to us. And so when Jesus dies, we are saved, uh, by whose wounds we are healed, uh, it says in the Old Testament. Um, that's the truth. When Christ dies, we get forgiveness. And when that blood of Jesus covers over us and we are justified, the reason for self-justification goes away. We are forgiven. We are set free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That last verse needs to be repeated. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That faith has an object. It's Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection for you, for me, for the life of the world. That is the eternal gospel that we continue to proclaim until Christ comes home comes back in his power and might and glory. Vicar, would you bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day for Reformation Day? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies and grant to your church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. When you get up on Sunday, uh, we'll be celebrating the Reformation. Um, Drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastors. But whether you do it in person, which we prefer, or YouTube, or on the radio, or online, please, please, please go to church. Hear the life-giving and life-changing Word of God, Jesus, for you and for your salvation. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be back again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ.